Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter of the book of Genesis. The next message will be Joel preaching an overview of what we did, kind of a summary of Genesis, but this is the conclusion of the whole matter in the book of Genesis. And it's not the happiest message you're ever going to hear, so buckle up. So I did, on a personal note, I had a lot of trouble putting this message together. It was a rough one. I don't want to tell you that it's my last message, but it is my last message, so I'll tell you anyway. For the foreseeable future, I love doing this, and I've been called to do it, but I've not been called to do it as a vocation, right? Not, for, not full time. So this was kind of a perfect thing in my life that allowed me to do this without having to change careers because the Lord had led me to do that. So my heart is definitely heavy with the loss, feeling of loss, and the feeling of the unknown of what God's doing next for my family and my life and a bunch of yours as well. God's not shown me what is next, but as I studied and we get into this message, he has shown me that he is with me, 100%. He is with all of us who call on his name, every single one of us. And now my job is to do what Joseph demonstrates in this passage and what Joseph has demonstrated through the several passages we've gone through with his life. And that is to be patient and wait for the deliverance of the Lord. Psalm 34 and following says, so Psalm 30, verse 4 and following, not Psalm 34 and following. Psalm 30, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. <clears throat> you hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So let's pray to start out the message. Father, we praise you for this time we get to spend together. We thank you for all that you've done in our lives, all that you continue to do in our lives, and you will do in the future. We trust you, Father. We pray that these words would be a blessing <clears throat> and that they would be true and that they would be honoring to you, Father, and that your spirit will be able to do work within my heart and other people's hearts today as part of what this is. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so last week, Joel brought out <clears throat> Genesis chapter 49. He did an amazing job with bringing out and talking about what Everybody's headings in the Bible says are the blessings of, of Jacob to all, this, all of his sons. And he took it in a little bit different way that maybe you haven't heard before in that it's not really about individuals. It's about the corporate Israel. And it's prophetic. And you can see that different parts of what he spoke over his sons gets played out later in Scripture that it wasn't just an individual conversation between a father and his sons, you know, sending them off as he's, as he's on his deathbed, but it was 
laying the groundwork for the nature of the way the tribes of Israel would interact with each other in the future. So I'm going to call, he also did a really cool little paraphrase that he, that he, he read, and I asked him to send me a copy, and he sent me a couple screenshots of this crazy chicken scratch that I'm going to have to try to decipher. But I call that the Joel American version, the Jav, so maybe we can all get copies of that. So in Genesis chapter 50, you can turn in your Bibles to there. There we go. So we're going to talk about, you know, what, what's going on in this text. And there's a few topics that I'm just going to list out here that we're going to touch on. We're going to talk about death and how it's dealt with. Because it's me, we're going to have a little section on archaeology. We're going to talk about a little bit of long-term dysfunction and chronic deception. We're going to talk about hope with prophecy. We're going to talk about the constant focus of the promises of God over the terms of decades. We're going to talk about believing loyalty versus self-interest more prophecy, I'm going to take a rabbit trail, another rabbit trail, because again, that's me, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I love Alistair Begg, and so I'm going to say a doctrinal rabbit trail instead of a doctrinal rabbit trail, because that just sounds so weak. It's a doctrinal rabbit trail. So, how this applies to Aletheia today, and there's a couple of random thoughts. I guess they're not random anymore since I wrote them down. But Proverbs says, a wise man leaves a legacy to his children's children, both spiritual and physical. Keep that in your head. And whenever we say the, word, the phrase, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, think promise. Anytime you read that in the scriptures, that's what you need to think. You think promise. So keep that in your head. So let's jump into the text. Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, pause. First of all, I want to talk about Joseph's reaction. First thing he does is he falls on his face and he weeps over his father. It's obvious that he deeply loved his father. And we know that Joseph feels things deeply already because as we've read through this, when his brothers showed up, he had to leave the room because he was weeping so much and he didn't want them to see because they didn't know who he was yet and he was still pretending to be, I'm the second in command of Egypt. You know, those guys don't cry. So, He's, he's just constantly feeling these emotions and these things, and he, he doesn't hide them. He's not ashamed of showing his emotions. Something that we all have faced, most of us, and will face in the future is the deaths of those that are close to us. And so simply meditating on Joseph's reactions shows us a glimpse into some of the depths of emotions that people feel that we may not... Um, we may not let out all the time, but we'll get into that later. The fact that 
Joseph, he commanded his servants and the physicians. They embalmed him 40 days for that, and then the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. This is a national mourning. This demonstrates tremendous respect for Joseph by the Egyptians and by proxy to Jacob, right? So let's move on to the next verse. Four, and when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. All right, this is hundreds of people, right? Maybe thousands, but it's a very large caravan. They've got ceremonial trappings. They've got guards. They've got pack animals. They've got food, water, you name it. Imagine how much this cost the Egyptian government. Not to mention the fact that Pharaoh is taking the de facto ruler for these past 14 years and saying, yeah, that's fine. You can leave for three weeks. I'll go ahead and pick up the slack of everything you've been doing, right? He's showing a lot of respect for him, even though it's going to personally impact Pharaoh, right? It's going to be like, oh, I'm going to have to do some stuff now. That's kind of a bummer. Notice in the latter half of verse 8, the children and the flocks are left behind. Proof that they would return. In case anyone was wondering, yep, we're not going to leave our children behind and all of our flocks, we're going to come back, which is what he promised. And then you go into the Exodus in the next book and you see Moses and the children of Israel leaving and what would he not do? He wouldn't leave anything behind. And him and Pharaoh are arguing back and forth. He says, no, I need to bring all of my animals and everyone out into the wilderness to worship. So there's a little bit of a change because at this point, God is using Egypt in the life of corporate Israel to, re to keep it alive, to save them to let them grow in peace and protection. And when we get to the Exodus, God is reversing that and saying, Egypt is no longer your place of protection. It's now becomes in the Bible the same idea as the world. Go to Egypt is a bad thing. And so then he pulls his people out. Let's go to verse 10. <clears throat> when they came to the uh, threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. <clears throat> okay, we've already seen the nation of Egypt mourning for Jacob for 70 days <clears throat> after 40 days of embalming. Now this long journey, 
And then we get to the place, and now we see this lamentation that flows across the land of Canaan. And it's not quiet reflection. It's not controlled grief. This is a let it all out, scream to the heavens, unrestrained grief. It's visible. It's open. It's unabashed. It's like when David danced before the Lord with all his might, and his wife said, dude, you're embarrassing me. And he's like, I'll do even more. I've got to do what i got to do. That's what these guys are doing. There's a lesson in this for us. Do not let embarrassment or pride stifle your grieving. Don't let what you think other people are going to say cause you to push that down and stuff that stuff. When my brother took his own life and my mother passed away and my father passed away, I stuffed most of it. And I paid consequences in depression and anger for years. I did do much better with my father. I let myself feel it. I let myself sit in it. I let myself just let the grief wash over me and not pretend I was fine. I got, had to let it run its course. Why did I stuff it before? Well, I grew up in rural Montana, and men don't cry up there. So you don't, you don't let all that out. It's just like, nope, I'm fine, it'll be fine. Yep, I'm sad, but it doesn't show on your face. At least it didn't on mine. The scripture, though, shows us in this passage a different path. path. This course, this is, of course, you know, backed by modern psychology because they're good at pointing out what was true, you know, a couple thousand years ago in the Bible, which is always amazing. Science says this. Oh, yeah, that's what the Bible says. That's great. <laughs> so that's another thing, right? Joseph is not at all holding anything back, and his brothers are also there grieving as well, right? So this is, this, is the, this is what God chose to record about Joseph and the death of his father. This is what God chose to show us in the pages of Scripture, this letting it out and dealing with it and lamenting in a way that these inhabitants of the land are all going, what is happening right here? This is crazy. These Egyptians are just going nuts. So that's, that's something to you know, keep in mind. Let's go to verse 12. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So now let's take a little archaeological side trip. Ed, if you could throw that up on the screen, that'd be great. That's a big building. Has anyone ever seen that building before? I know you guys have got to have seen this building before. This is in Jerusalem. Well, it's actually in the West Bank in, in Hebron. This was built by Herod. Why did he build this building? Well, he built a tomb structure on top of the cave complex that is talked about in this passage, the field and the caves at Machpelah, which Abraham bought. And remember, we talked about before when we went through that section of Scripture, Abraham made a point of giving recompense for that field. He did not take it, even though they offered to give it to him for free. And God had already told him, all this land belongs to you and your descendants. 
So technically, he already owned the field. But he made sure to pay for it and have it recorded. So in some ways, this is like one of the oldest known witness transactions, financial transactions, between two people. Everyone knows that Abraham bought this field to use as a burial place. It's his and his family after him, and no one can contest it. But about 2,000 years ago, Herod built this tomb structure, and during the Roman era, era, thousands of crazy awesome buildings were created, right? But most of them used really soft limestone, and so most of them are destroyed. This one was not. And it didn't use soft limestone. This used a really hard stone that he brought in. I mean, including the temple in Jerusalem, Masada, Herodian, Caesarea, the Colosseum in Rome, and many others. So there's only one other example of a Roman area building. Uh, actually, I misspoke. This is the only example of a Roman area built, era building that survived in its entirety. So the Temple in Jerusalem and the cave, this is called the Cave of the Patriarchs. That's what they call this. They were built in a similar style uh, using these giant, what they call Herodian stones because they're really, really big. However, Herod used them were granite and some other kind of hard stone. <clears throat> However, it's lasted quite, quite nicely. And the Christian and Muslim conquerors of the land of Israel over the centuries built and added their own structures onto the sides of this thing. Christian Byzantines built a large basilica of the, uh, and the church over the cave, incorporating the Herodian structure and their, uh, into their structure. And at that time, the Jews were officially forbidden from entering Jerusalem. So here we have the cave of the patriarchs, we have Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah because we know that Rachel was buried somewhere else. And actual Jewish myth says Adam and Eve are buried in these caves. Nobody can prove that one. But that's what they say. In the year 638, the Muslim Arabs conquered Hebron and turned the church into a mosque. At this stage, Muslim authorities were fairly tolerant of Jewish presence in the city, so they let them back in. In the year 1100, the Crusaders conquered Hebron, expelled all the Jews, and reconverted the mosque back to a church. Great, isn't it? The Muslim Mamelukes conquered the city in 1260 and again turned it into a mosque. The Mamelukes were not as tolerant of the Jews as their previous Muslim rulers, and they barred Jews and Christians from entering the building. So for 700 years, from 1267 to 1967, Jews were humbled and humiliated at the site, and they were only allowed to approach as far as the seventh step down to the building, to the outside eastern stairway. Here they prayed and wept and longed for the day when they would once again be able to pray at the actual holy graves of the matriarchs and patriarchs. In the meantime, the Muslim authorities erected several minarets at the site. They encircled the the memorials to the Jewish patriarchs and matriarchs with Arabic verses and the clear intention of giving the Jewish holy place a Muslim identity. To this day, no one is allowed to go into the actual tombs unless you're Muslim and they have to let, let you. Like, it's not a pilgrimage place to go into the actual tombs. So there's all these people that over the years, have because they want to they prove what's in there. Because we have Jacob, 
who was embalmed in the Egyptian style. That is actually illegal in Judea, in Israel today. It's illegal in the law. You can be buried, and that's about it. That's the law. You can't, you can't be cremated. You can't be embalmed. All of these things. Now, the law wasn't in place yet, right? So then Joseph, later, as we'll see in this chapter, he's also embalmed. So there's two of the Jewish patriarchs that are embalmed in the Egyptian manner, and archaeologists and historians, they want to prove that this is, in fact, the right cave, and that these are the right people because they've been embalmed. And it would be crazy if Adam and Eve were in there too, right? <laughs> but So there's your archaeological sidebar. That's what's happening with the cave of the patriarchs, and anybody can go visit it. You just can't go actually down there. There was a story, though, of a, of a little girl who was very small for her age, and she was like nine years old, and they trained her how to use camera equipment, and they'd found this old part of the old sewage system, and they were able to lower her down into the caves at the lowest levels, and she was in there for like two hours filming everything she could see, and then they pulled her back up. This is the links that people are going to to try to get in there and see what's there. Everybody wants to know what's there. So anyway, let's go back to the text. Let's go to verse 15. Do I need to review everything? Did you forget now that I took this sidebar? <clears throat> when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Now, when I preached, I think it was chapter 37, we were talking a lot about the issue of Joseph's brothers not admitting really what they did to him. You know, remember, sold him into slavery. They were going to kill him, and then he got sold into slavery. And then they told their father a lie and said he got torn up by wild animals. Rather, they didn't tell him that directly. They just showed him his bloody robe, and he made that uh, conclusion. So they were very deceptive, and they carried on this deception for years and years and years, and we talked about it. And I actually came to this passage and said, well, here, they're kind of coming clean. But that's not really true, as we're going to see. So what they're doing right now, this statement, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. They are attributing to Joseph thoughts, judgments, and desires that they, in fact, have that if they, if they analyze the reactions and treatment that he's already given them, they would never think that. They would never think that he was going to try to exact revenge now that their dad was gone. It's like, well, dad was alive. You weren't going to do anything to us because he was keeping everything cool. And now you're going to get revenge. And since you're the de facto ruler of Egypt, that's going to be no problem for you, right? So they are, they are projecting. This is how they would have reacted had someone done this to them. However, they haven't gotten the main driving force of their brother's life and his father before him. He truly believes and follows God with his entire being. They still don't get that or embrace it. Well, how do I know? Verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Um, nope. Never happened. 
There's no record of Jacob telling them, you know what, when I die, go ahead and make sure your brother knows I want, I want him to forgive you. Remember the relationship that Joseph had with his other sons. They were second-class citizens to him. He did not treat them the same way he treated Joseph and Benjamin. And they all knew it. And we have the situation with Reuben, basically, you know, sleeping with his father's concubine, right? Because he wanted to elevate his mother above Rachel. <clears throat> he wanted to elevate Leah above Rachel. And so we know that Joseph would have not taken their side in anything. And you can see by all of the prophecies slash blessings that he poured out in the last chapter, he was very straightforward and he said, this is what's up. And he gave them their final words from him. And it wasn't, Joseph, forgive your brothers. So that didn't really, really happen that way, right? So they say, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God, your father. What happens now? Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I believe, and I'm not alone in this, that the reason Joseph is weeping is because he knows his brothers have still not come to repentance for what they did. But still want to avoid the consequences that would have been required of them had they been justly punished for their actions. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So you remember those two prophecies that started this whole thing. What did he say? You're going you're gonna, to, the wheat bows down before the stalks, and you know, the sun and the moon and the stars bow down. And his brothers are like, Excuse me? We're going to bow down to you? I don't think so. So what do they do? They sell him into slavery. They didn't like him. Why are they in rebellion to the God of their fathers? Something that they don't seem to have considered here is that instead of celebrating that the Most High, Yahweh, Yahweh the God of their fathers, would visit their own brother with a prophetic vision multiple times in his life and think, that is incredible. Look at how God is blessing our family. They were jealous. They blamed even God's blessing on the fact that their father loved Joseph over them, or rather Rachel over Leah, their mother. But verse 19, Joseph says, said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? This is forgiveness over judgment, or rather judgment with mercy as opposed to judgment with condemnation. Joseph has submitted to God's will and the direction for all of these events. He doesn't presume to take revenge because God did not lead him to take revenge. So he's, any feelings he may have on the matter, he's just giving those over to God and saying, Lord, this is your deal, and I'm going to follow whatever you want. And what he's been led to do is completely love and forgive his brothers, regardless of whether they actually really admit what they did. He chooses to daily follow his father's will. And I shouldn't have to point out that that's a good example for us to do. Daily follow our father's will, right? As for you, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And now for the doctrinal sidebar. This verse, verse 20 this is the ESV. It uses the word meant. You meant evil against me, and God meant it for good. This is a beautiful verse. 
This has actually provided millions of Christians and Jews with hope and comfort when bad things are happening around them. But in the area of Christian denominations, interpretive systems and their distinctives, this is a very contentious verse. How many people knew that this was a very contentious verse? Manny knew. Gold star for Manny. I know, I know. It's always lording that over us. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, let's visit this briefly. And if I could get a soapbox up here, I would like to stand on. That would be great. No? Okay. This, like I said, this is the ESV translation. So in various words, various versions, the Hebrew version of this word is translated in English, devised, planned, meant, intended, and in one version it's translated deliberated. Of those, deliberated is actually the closest. If you listen to a Jewish rabbi preach over this passage, this is the word choice he's going to make in general. It also happens to be the word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, in case you needed a Greek word to throw in your back pocket, which is overwhelmingly the version that is quoted directly from in the New Testament. New Testament's written in Greek. And when they quoted, the apostles quoted from the Old Testament, they didn't usually quote from a Hebrew version, they quoted from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. These other words are used to do something in Christian doctrinal circles, or doctrinal, never do, and that is attribute the sin of an individual person to predestination by God. Because they take it where it says, he meant evil, or he meant good for their evil. Now you are attributing all of their motives, aspirations, and reasons for what they did are predestined so that they got into the position of putting their brother into a pit and wanting to kill him and then turning him over to slavers. And that God predestined all of their actions in order to make this come about, which says he predestined them to sin. We can't do that. The Bible tells us directly that is not what God does. God can't be the author of those sins, but if he is the author of those things, then there's no choice. They didn't have any choice in what they did. All their decisions were already predestined. I've also talked previously about the image of God, being God's imagers, being the representative of God on earth and what that means. And one of the things about being the image of God is that you have uncoerced choices because God has those. And if you didn't have the ability to make choices, you wouldn't be or displaying God's image. It's not there. You can't have one without the other. And he made us his imagers. He made us his representatives on earth. That's why things like abortion and euthanasia and those things are wrong. There is no attribute. It isn't consciousness. It isn't decision-making ability. It isn't the ability to have relationships that makes a human life valuable. It is the fact that you were created in God's image that makes you valuable. That and that alone is what makes you valuable. And there isn't any set of attributes that make you an imager. A person who goes into a coma because of a car accident and is legally brain dead is no less an imager of God than I am. 
just because they can't interact with other people. That's what the Bible says about God's image. So don't get confused about getting into an argument that you know, consciousness or love or these different abilities to do things in life are what makes you valuable. That isn't what makes you valuable. God makes you valuable because he created us in his image. And that choice, that uncoerced choice, is what is an, is an aspect of his image. And scripture is very clear about this idea that God is not the author of sin. Let's go back to James 1, 12 through 15, which we preached over the book of James before. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, which says choice, his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God is not the author of the own desire. We, it's ours. We're the author of it. Now we go back to the word meant. The Hebrew word is called hashaf. This word means to consider. For example, pertaining to thought and thinking in a detailed, logical manner, considering various factors, which has some focus on the formulation of an opinion. This is from the standard Hebrew English dictionary that is used by scholars when they're doing word studies in the Old Testament and you know, writing their PhD dissertations and such. Another way that you can translate it, you can use plan, plot, purpose, and devise, but it has a connotation. And that connotation is, think about a course of action in some detail. Be on the verge, begin, be on the beginning of a course of action as a figurative extension of logical reasoning. So what does all that mean? It means when it says, they meant it for evil, it means they thought about it. We want to get rid of our brother, what can we do? They came up with a plan. They're going to murder him. Turned into selling him into slavery. So their plans changed over time. And so then you have God looking at the situation and going, I'm going to use this because, again, don't get me wrong, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. But being sovereign does not make him the author of sin. And if we have such small minds that we cannot conceive of a God who can take actual real choice and work it in his sovereign will, what kind of a box are we putting him in? That we're saying that the only way God could do this is if he controls all the choices. That's basically saying, I understand how God handles will and choice and sovereignty. And I don't understand that. And who of us does understand that? And if you say you understand it, I'm going to stand here and say, I don't think so. It ain't happening. Sorry, bud. You, only God can understand that. No one else. So let's not limit God's ability to use uncoerced choices and use them in a sovereign way. And one question I have is, could this have happened in a different way than it did? I mean, could it have been different? For example, Joseph was wandering around the wilderness looking for his brothers. If you remember the story, 
He went to where they were supposed to be, which I believe was called Dothan or Dokin. I don't remember. What happened? They weren't there. So he asked the locals, hey, I'm looking for these guys. Have you seen them? And they said, yeah, they went up here. So Joseph goes up and finds his brothers. He could have been picked up by Midianite slavers on the way to pick up his brothers or find his brothers. It wasn't necessary that he had to get thrown into the cistern. There's other ways that it could have happened, that God could have used other circumstances for his purpose of bringing Joseph into Egypt and preserving Israel. It reminds me of David in the city of Kilah when God and him have a conversation about what could happen versus what did happen. Saul hears he's going in the city, he's in a walled city, and David goes and consults God and says, okay, um, I hear Saul's going to come down here. If they come down, will Saul come down? And God said, yeah, Saul's definitely going to come down. And he said, well, if he comes down, will these guys turn me over to Saul? And God says, yeah, they will definitely turn you over to Saul. So David leaves. Saul doesn't show up because he heard David left. So all of those things that God said, this will definitely happen, did not happen. They weren't predestined. Foreknowledge does not equal predestination. Because God knows what could happen in all the various ways does not mean that it has to happen in one way. And there's all kinds of things that God has allowed to happen that we don't know about, we don't understand, because he doesn't tell us everything in Scripture. But like I said, don't misunderstand. I do believe God is sovereign, and he did use these events to bring about his will in a specific way. But he did not cause anyone to sin. He did not predestine people's sin. All right, take the soapbox back. Now another review. Let's go back to the text. So, Let's go back to Joseph in verse 21. So he just made this statement. He said, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph, after he, he wept, his brothers are basically trying to get him to you know, not hurt them and they're attributing to him things that he's not, he's not guilty of. God continues to demonstrate love for his brothers and compassion in the face of their obstinance, even though they aren't really coming clean, he's, he's continuing to love them. In a small way, it reminds me of Christ looking over to Jerusalem and saying that he longed to gather them into his arms as a mother hen longs to gather her chicks, but they were not willing. That's another example. They were not willing. And that word willing should mean something. If it doesn't really mean something because we don't actually have any choice, then why is God using those words in the scripture? Verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt and he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation and children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's sons. Joseph spent 93 years in Egypt 93 years following God's will. 13 of that was in prison. Knowing he would never see the promised land given to him by the hands of Israel. God gave them the promised land and he knows he's never gonna see it again 
in possession. Like, he's seen it, and he went back and buried his father. Maybe he visited once in a while. We don't, we don't know that. But they're not taking possession. Israel is not coming into the promise that God gave his fathers. I just asked God to help my faith to think about that. Spending that many years in a promise that is not being fulfilled. And remember what I said in Proverbs. A wise man leaves a legacy to his children's children. So a free question on the side is what kind of legacy do you want to leave for your children's children? What do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known? How many of us remember our great, great, great-grandfather or know anything about him? I don't. I don't remember anything about him. I don't want that to happen in my family. I would like them to remember God's work in my life, and maybe it had a positive impact on my descendants. But we'll see. We'll just be up there watching, right? And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So in verse 24, Joseph does utter another prophecy, and he also basically says, and take my remains with you. I want to be buried in the cave of my fathers. I don't want to be buried here. Some 300 plus years later, God continues to fulfill this covenant that he made with Abraham, and he takes them to the promised land. And again, remember that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob means promise. And he says that in verse 24, from the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He's invoking the covenant. He's saying Abraham and God made this covenant, and it will not ever fail. So... Take me with you when you go. We are the body of Christ. Correct? Does anyone not believe we're the body of Christ? Good. I'm going to read Romans 12, 3 through 21. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think himself of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, and give, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is there any other scripture that has so much packed into it than that one passage for the church, for us? Aletheia is an expression of that body of Christ, are we not? It's a complete body with all of its parts. It has a purpose. It has a life that's living and active. And now it's at its end. So we need to do what Joseph did. We need to weep. We need to mourn. We need to give dignity and respect to that life and all that it has provided to all of us and anyone that it touched. The growth, the learning, the love, the difficulties, the annoyances, the issues that came up, all the things that make up each one of us as individuals applies to this body. And therefore, we need to take that into consideration. We contribute to the space that we occupy in life, and this church contributed to the space that it occupied. And our contributions expanded its contributions. They're one and the same. Worship team, if you would be so kind. I'm going to pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We pray you bless it. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this body. We pray that you would take this music, these songs, these lyrics, Lord, you will infuse them into our hearts and minds as we corporately, together, as a body, pray for you, pray to you, pray for each other, worship you, Lord. We praise you for that. We just thank you so much for bringing us here. And we want to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name. So as we worship, just be thinking about legacy. Be thinking about mourning. Be thinking about what comes after that. And then I'll come back up and lead us in communion after the first song. I want to leave one other thought. And before that, I want to go back. I said that my, the reason that I stuffed all that grief that I had was because, you know, men don't cry, which is a gross oversimplification of the matter, okay? I didn't want to show that emotion or feel that emotion is because I didn't want to accept what was happening around me. I didn't want to embrace the fact that they were gone forever in my life. I did not want to feel that pain, that grief. I remember uh, with my brother, sorry, with my mom, I just, no, I guess that was my brother. 
confusing. I was in college. That was a long time ago. Brain gets a little fuzzy when you get my age. No offense to those that are beyond my age. <laughs> um, I would come home after school and work, and I would lay on the floor of the living room, and my son Brandon, who was not even in school yet, would come and just play with daddy, jump on me or whatever, and I was basically in a comatose state just laying there. And my wife is like, what is up? And I wouldn't talk to her. I just, you know, then the next morning I would get up and go back and do it all again. I didn't want to feel it. And I've talked to people in this situation. They don't want to feel it. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want it to happen. I don't want it to happen, to be honest. But it's happening. This is what God has led us to do. So I want to leave you with one thought. As I said, we must do what Joseph did with his father, with the body, Aletheia. And after the grieving, we must celebrate this body by following after the one who decreed its end with our whole hearts. The beginning, I read that long passage in Romans chapter 12 about the body fit together and the gifts and all of those things, right? Crazy amounts of stuff about the church. If you've never studied through that passage, you should go spend like a year in it. There's a lot. But the beginning of that passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2, which everyone knows if they've been in the church any amount of time, I appeal, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which seems like an oxymoron. How can it be a living sacrifice? But holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're called to present our bodies as priests of God, and I preached on this one, the sacrifice of ourselves. We are the high priests of God. He calls us his high priests. That is what the body of Christ is. That is the transformation of what was in Israel and is now in the church. We are the priests of God, and we're supposed to sacrifice ourselves on a daily basis. And we're supposed to go forward to a new and beautiful, expanded purpose that God is launching from out of this body with all the people that are members of this body. Even as we abide in a time of grief, he is doing that right now. Remember, Jesus is right here, right now, because way more than two or three are gathered in his name. He's in our midst. So let us now worship him together through the songs and remembrance of all the things God's done here.